my mom came to visit me and um, I asked her to give me a haircut, which she hadn't done since I was little, but she used to cut my hair when I was little. So I was like, oh, please give me a haircut. Um, this should have been a red flag, but it was not. <laughs> um, so she cut my hair and she did not do a very good job of it. There was no playing it cool in that moment. I just like burst into tears. And my mom was so horrified. And she's like, oh, calm down, calm, calm down. We'll call your hairdresser. We'll say it's an emergency. And I was like, I can't go back there. I bounced a check, which is another thing that dates this story. I had bounced, I'd written a check to my hairdresser um, and it had bounced. And so I just felt like I couldn't go back. And this was the reason that I had asked her to cut it in the first place. And this was like the, the hitting bottom kind of moment because I just, I did not have it under control and I could no longer in that moment pretend that I did. And so I was just willing to kind of like throw up my hands and, and ask for help. Welcome to episode 23 of Real Stories, Journeys of Financial Wellness. I'm your host, Crystal Lugazima. You're in for a treat today. Our guest, Amanda Clayman, is a financial therapist. In other words, a clinician specializing in money issues. I've known Amanda for over a decade, and I'm so thrilled to share her wisdom with her audience. She believes money can be a tool for transformation, something she learned firsthand. In her own words... Several years ago, she blew up her financial life so spectacularly that it propelled her in a whole new career direction. We'll start with Amanda's financial blow-up and learn how she put things back together. And then, for the segment where we share practical tips, we decided to switch things up and keep Amanda in the hot seat to pick her brain. She has a lot of awesome tips that you want to stay tuned for. Let's meet Amanda. Amanda, welcome to Real Stories. Uh, as I like to with all my guests, before we get into your money story, I wanted to, to learn a little bit about how you grew up learning about money. So what was your experience like growing up with regards to money? I had a really interesting experience growing up um, in terms of money, in part because I feel like I got to live at a lot of different socioeconomic levels, just myself and my own experience. Um, my parents divorced when I was just a little kid and I was, uh, raised for a period with just my mom and me living in a trailer in a kind of rural place. And, and then, um, she remarried and sort of my stepfather had a career trajectory where like, by the time I graduated from high school and we, we moved quite a bit too, as part of this. So it would be like, okay, now we live here and this is our neighborhood. And these are kind of the, the money norms among these people. And, um, but by the time I graduated from high school, we were kind of like in a town, a bigger town in the, one of the nicest neighborhoods in that town. And, uh, my younger brother, uh, was kind of raised more in the second half of that. So he would say things like, 
you know, like my favorite food is duck. And I would look at him and just be like, what? Like, how are we living in the same family? Like, how can you even say that out loud and not be self-conscious about it? And so I was very aware, even as a young person that like, oh, money shapes who we are and our experiences in all of these very different and specific ways. So I know that uh, as many of us, I know I experienced this, I think just about every guest I talked to has shared some uh, spinoff of this experience that I'll ask you about. And that is getting offered your first credit card. What do you remember about how it was offered and kind of what your experience was like in the immediate aftermath of said credit card? So I got my first credit card. Amazingly, it was an American Express, which now, you know, Amex is one of the harder ones to get. So like you you definitely know that my story takes place in the freewheeling kind of early mid nineties. Um, you can also date my story by hearing that the reason that I signed up for this credit card was because I got a free Koosh ball and, you know, nobody under 40 even has any idea of what a Koosh ball is, but it was this weird sort of ball made of rubber bands that you would get. And I don't know, we would throw it at each other in a college door, but like, Literally, there was some trinket. Um, it was at like some giveaway trinket. It was at this table set up outside of my college, like the official university bookstore. So it was kind of sanctioned to be there. But like millions of other people, it started with like, oh, I get this free thing. And what's the big deal? And oh, now I have a credit card um, in an environment where I felt safe and wasn't asking any difficult questions. It's funny that you mentioned the Koosh ball because immediately I remembered that I got a rainbow slinky. So apparently they, different credit card companies shopped at the same place. Um, we were so, so easily bought as, as customers, so easily bought. Amazing. So when you were in college, what was the usage like during that period? I didn't use it much. So one of the things that I I had kind of learned or picked up from my parents, which I I hadn't really examined and wasn't examining um, until far later, but like I was pretty inhibited and anxious about using money and using credit. Like I, I was very, I was taught to be sort of naturally frugal about things. So for example, like going to college was the first time that I ever saw somebody pay to send their laundry out had never had any idea that that was a thing. So like, see, just because in our house, we kind of did everything ourselves. We didn't spend money unless it was kind of necessary. Um, so I approached using credit in the same way and, and didn't use it like to go out and, and buy meals out or, or many kind of extravagant lifestyle things, maybe until I'd had it for a few years. Like I do remember going to the mall and buying like a sweater my senior year. Um, and that was unusual enough that I even remember that now, but, but credit use for me started very small. Um, and it was not, it wasn't like a big consumer early on with credit cards that took a radical turn, but initially I was, I was pretty conservative in my use. Yes, the radical term. And I'm going to guess it was when you moved to New York City right out of college with little to no savings. So yes. what what happened in that case? So I really, that was an experience where like you can make a, when it comes to like financial choices, there are, are 
small choices that accumulate over time. And then there are some really big choices that happen all at once. And when I moved to New York, um, I moved with just this like almost dumb level of confidence about how it would work out. And I went without a lot of preparation and certainly with without any savings that I can recall. And, and I just sort of like put one foot in front of the other and solved what I had to. And one of the first things that I had to solve is I didn't have the ability to like have, I didn't have money for a security deposit or a broker's fee, which we used to have to pay in New York at that time. Um, and the way that I, I solved that for myself is I, I took the checks that came with my credit card statement and I wrote a check for the amount that I would need for the security deposit and a check that I would need for the broker's fee, deposited those in the bank and then got the cashier's checks in order to pay for those. So like I went from a very modest amount of debt to just all of a sudden like dropping thousands um, with that, that one choice that I made. And, and what I found then, which was kind of interesting in retrospect is that once I was carrying a balance, all of those like $50 here and there kinds of choices seemed so diminished, like to go from zero to 50 seemed like a big deal in my head, but to go from like 3000 to 3050, that somehow was, was felt very different in terms of the calculus of that decision. And I, I guess you didn't know it at the time, but behavioral uh, economics, it, it's a thing, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but um, I understand that as you uh, started to accumulate debt, you, you started to take some strategies to keep the cards paid on time that on one end, kept them on time, may have preserved your credit score uh, somewhat, but then also... I understand, got you further into debt. Can, can you talk about that a little bit more? So I, I, I think it is very generous of you to say that any of that was strategic. <laughs> in my notes, I did put that in quotes, which I didn't do just now. Yes, yes. Those air quotes are doing a lot of work around that word. Um, I, I was like, I would try things. Like I would get very anxious around my debt. I would put all of the money that I had toward paying as much down on, on like the card that was the scariest at the time, but then I would have no money and I would need to use other credit cards in order to pay for the things that I kind of needed or wanted, or I would use the convenience checks from one credit card to pay another credit card. Like it, it was like the wild, wild West in this period in terms of, just like, I would just sort of grab whatever seemed like a solution in the moment, whatever one was in front of me and just then just be like, Oh, okay. That crisis was averted until the next bill came. And, and eventually I had sort of like tangled everything up so much that, that it didn't feel like there was any relief or any break. Like I just felt like I was in trouble and had no idea where to turn. So at that point, like, how was that affecting you emotionally or even physically? Well, I, to some degree, I was pretty compartmentalized around it. And I also wasn't surrounded by very good role models. Um, you know, I, I remember my friend, John, John saying like, you know what fabulous is fabulous is being down to your last $5 and spending it at Starbucks. And I was kind of like, all right, I'm just going to put that in my brain in terms of like 
definitions of fabulous. So like there were people around me who were making similar choices. So some of it was normalized, but, but when, and life was flashy and exciting. And, and I think I had the sense of a lot of sort of mid 20 year olds where you you're like, I'll figure this out when I'm grown up. Like at some point I'm going to get this together. I can't be this messy forever. But in my quieter moments, I was a walking ball of panic or more accurately, I was a not sleeping ball of panic um, because the middle of the night was, was kind of the fraught time for me where I would wake up and just feel like, oh my gosh, this is, this is terrible. And, and it's the kind of terrible that I have created. Like the terribleness is in me and this is, and, and so it was like just such a deeply shameful part of my, my life that, that, you know, at one point the shame was kind of like, I could keep it in the corner, but as the situation sort of dragged on and, and um, the problem just seemed to get bigger and bigger, even as I made more money, I still never seemed to be able to, to solve it. Um, so it just started to seem more and more like this is something that's bad about me instead of this is something bad that's happening to me. So I'm hearing that there was some, even though some conversations might've been had about money in general, that the amount of your debt was sort of uh, something that was a, a secret. So how did this secrecy affect things? Was it easy to like, like, how did you even reach the point where you even shared it with anyone? Well, it kind of started to make everything else in my life that was going well, started to make it seem like those things were the lie. And the truth was that I was just a hopeless mess. And, and so it's like, but that didn't make me more forthcoming about the problem. It actually made me much more into like, I'm just going to perform, you know, like competence and coolness as much as I can and hope that nobody ever notices this this thing about me. Um, but what kind of happened is um, my mom came to visit me one day and I was like 26 or 27. So this situation has been kind of like slowly compounding um, for, you know, five or so years. My mom came to visit me and um, I asked her to give me a haircut, which she hadn't done since I was little, but she used to cut my hair when I was little. So I was like, oh, please give me a haircut. Um, this should have been a red flag, but it was not. <laughs> um, so she cut my hair and she did not do a very good job of it. Um, you know, she, either my standards were a lot higher now that I was living in cosmopolitan New York, or maybe she hadn't cut anybody's hair for a good 20 years and, and hair has, hairstyles are different. Um, but there was no playing it cool in that moment. I just like burst into tears and my mom was so horrified and she's like, oh, calm down, calm, calm down. We'll call your hairdresser. We'll say it's an emergency. And I was like, I can't go back there. I bounced a check, which is another thing that dates this story. I'd bounced, I'd written a check to my hairdresser um, and it had bounced. And so I just felt like I couldn't go back. And this was the reason that I had asked her to cut it in the first place. Um, and, and this was like the, the hitting bottom kind of moment, A, because I just, I did not have it under control and I could no longer in that moment pretend that I did. And B, because I had sort of felt like 
if I just like, like budgets aren't for me and, and I want to be free when it comes to my money. And I just sort of want to live my life and have money work out. And, and in that moment, I was like, I am not free at all. Like I am 100% in a prison of, of trying to like avoid a choice and then having this choice made for me in a really negative way. And and so I was just willing to kind of like throw up my hands and and ask for help. And my mom, I had been, she would have been the last person that I actually wanted to tell about any of this, not because my mom's, you know, such a, a horrible judgmental person, but because like the the lessons of frugality that seemed so self-evident to her as to not even feel the need to teach them explicitly. It's just so like what one does. Like I thought that this would just be, this would fill her with horror. And she was just much more practical in her response um, and surprised, like really like, oh my, I can't believe there's this huge part of your life that like I didn't even know about. Um, And so I remember her like writing out like we first we had to fish out my secret stash of bills under the bed. Um, and then she kind of went through them and then she had like, you know, those little notebooks, not the like eight by 10 or, or eight half by 11 um, notebooks, but like the ones that are smaller that you keep like by the phone. So the small notebook and she's like, you know, rent, health insurance, um, phone bill, cell phone, like there was 10 items or less on this list. And she's like, here are the numbers. And then what's left over, then you have this much for your sort of like discretionary living expenses. And then these are your credit cards. And I was really like, what is this witchcraft that you have done? Like it, like the fact that it seems so simple and straightforward was just shocking to me. And the thing that she taught me in that was that like, she actually put a a sufficient number for discretionary such what I had been doing unknowingly has been in this really like feast famine kind of thing. Like take all the money, put it toward the debt, have no money, incur more debt kind of a cycle. And she was like, no, this is the amount of money that you live on. It is not, it's, it's, you know, a constraint, but it's not a punishment. And if you can just focus on like, as long as your income stays steady, and you can keep yourself within this discretionary number. Everything else is pretty automatic. And like, it sounds so just rational and self-evident, but like that was the piece that was just completely invisible for me when I tried to do that for myself. So it sounds like your reaction was one of both surprise, but I know you wrote about almost like a newfound, newfound freedom of living under the constraints of a budget, which sounds like an oxymoron, but I wonder if you could speak to that. The the difference was that when I was like, quote unquote free, and we'll put some more like hardworking quotes around this, um, that I was, I was never safe. So that kind of like, it was this abdication of not wanting to be bothered with something, but in abdicating it, I, I lived in fear constantly. Whereas like, if I could do this thing, which was keep my, keep my choices within a boundary. Um, and, and 
even to have the, if I needed to, I could adjust that boundary. Like if I wanted to sort of slow down my debt repayment because I needed more in discretionary, like, like that I could do if I needed to, but the idea is there needs to be some sort of a plan. There needs to be a boundary and inside of that boundary, you can feel safe. You can feel self-esteem. You can have a reasonable expectation that there's not going to be like a boogeyman and your lights aren't going to get turned off. And, and all of these things that I, that were sort of chaotically happening to me were no longer going to happen. And as a sort of like, you know, life, my mom presented me with that deal. And I was like, I will take that deal. That deal is so much better than the way that I have been living. And I, I ran to my budget and just embraced it with great love and total, like, you know, like I, my, my natural extremeness, which is like, I'm going to do none of this. Oh, I'm going to do this so much all the time. So that makes me wonder, um, once you really started to get in the mode of working your budget, paying down your debt, I understand that you did start feeling much more comfortable talking about debt with your friends. So how did that land with them? Everybody was like, oh, thank God you said something. We're in trouble too. We have no idea what to do. And and it it was it was such a great lesson, honestly, looking back, because it was it was the lesson was like just put it out there because it's crazy how much like like this group of us, like little lemmings are just going to like run off this cliff together rather than anybody say anything. And I remember like feeling kind of not disappointed, but like very um, disillusioned and feeling like, well, I just, I, I want to be a truth teller in my life. Like the, the keeping of secrets and the fact that everybody else was sort of complicit in keeping this a secret. Um, that's just not something I want to do anymore. Um, so, you know, my friends were really kind of psyched that somebody had made it okay, had sort of broken the permission barrier to be like, we're going to find these other things we can do. We can like meet in the park and go for walks or, you know, who knows who to get on the guest list for this party Um, or like um, put together like a clothing swap instead of going shopping. Like there were all kinds of fun things that we created out of it, but somebody had to kind of be the one to say, this isn't working for me. Somebody had to do that first. And and I understand that you uh, actually paid off that debt pretty nearly $20,000 worth of debt. Right. Um, And then you paid it off pretty quickly. Yeah, that was so 20,000 is like, that's nineties money. Like, I think it's, if we scale it for adjust for inflation, I think we're like in the thirties, not that that makes like a huge difference, but like, you know, it, it was very, it was significant. It took work. Like I mentioned a second ago, being kind of an extreme personality. Like as soon as I was focused on that, I was like attacking that debt with like taking on freelance jobs and like sending any kind of like birthday money gift that I got was like, I just want this eradicated. Um, It felt so good after being so feeling so powerless to suddenly feel powerful in relation to that financial goal. So as your, your debt did get paid off, but 
in in one of your writings, you reflected on the role that luck played in your being able to become debt free. Um, so I'm curious, like, what do you think might have been different during a different moment of time or under different circumstances? Like, what were parts of your situation that kind of were external that contributed towards you becoming debt free? I think the biggest difference is that I was I was earning enough money to be able to support myself reliably, <clears throat> to support myself reliably and to a certain degree, you know, with a range of comfort in there. So it it wasn't a really like I had to make choices, but none of those choices were really getting into areas that were um tough sacrifices for me to make. And um I did have like one of the things that my parents did help me with is that the stuff that was overdue um, or over um, the limit, like they were like, well, happy birthday to you. Like, this is the stuff that we will kind of reset you on. And I, I think that that made everything so much easier, obviously, than when you're trying to do the same thing and and it really does require those kinds of deep cuts um, or where you don't have somebody in your life who can provide such a, a significant gift. Not that it was like a significant and it was a huge amount of money, but like the difference between trying to get into a reliable system of paying things back when, when you're incurring a bunch of late fees or you're incurring over the limit fees, like the fees were killing me. And that really stopped that part of the machine that I was in. Yeah. So that you're kind of at least at no longer underwater. And Correct. Yeah. yeah but it's, it's, I find working with people that like the, we have to be very clear on like what it takes once the system is stable to just keep the system moving forward to that paid off point versus like when you're still caught in the penalty loop, how hard it is to, to do that initial work in order to get there. Absolutely. So um, we met probably what, 13, 14 years ago. So at the time I was still a financial counselor, also starting to do some community work, going out to local organizations to give financial literacy presentations in and around New York City. And so I know at the time that you were running a financial education program for the Actors Fund. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm just curious, how did how did you wind up there? How did that whole program that, that you were running actually come into being? Tell me about that story a little bit. I, so I sort of had this epiphany, I paid off my debt. And then I was like, wow, this is so interesting to me. Like, how is this not a job? Um, or at least I want to create a job so that I can work in this kind of space, this niche all the time, helping people bring their money into balance. Um, and for me, it was really framed very psychologically, um, but in a very practical way. So I I got my master's in social work. I left my my career uh, in marketing and and got a master's in social work. And my second year uh, internship was at the Actors Fund, where they have had this financial assistance program, emergency financial assistance for people in the entertainment industry who were like out of the job and couldn't pay their health insurance premium or um, pay their rent, et cetera. There were, there were funds that were administered by social workers who would help them 
sort of figure out how to, to create a stability plan. So I walked in there as an almost social worker and then ended up getting a job afterward that I wrote essentially. I was like, here's, you know, why you can't, you can't expect people to stabilize by helping them with their rent if their credit card minimums are equivalent to what their rent is, because we wouldn't help with credit card minimums. So it was like helping them envision a bigger financial picture of, of what the challenges were that people in the industry faced and, and then sort of creating a, a comprehensive, like, what's the program strategy going to be? And I just had like an infinite amount of energy for that. And, and it was truly like, not only the best job that I could have gotten, but the only job it's not like, like now financial wellness is on everything, but like in those days, this is like 2005. And when we launched the the financial wellness program, that was kind of a revolutionary thing. So I am really lucky that there was a job and that it was a job where I, I got to, to take all the things that were in my head in terms of like what was missing from this as a problem um, and work with such an interesting organization and with a population of people who, who had such fascinatingly complex financial lives in that, you know, the actors fund isn't just for performers, but like the industry is the entertainment industry and performing arts field is really typified by people doing kind of more project or contract based work. So, so episodic employment, they might have multiple jobs that they're doing. So, so their income is really variable. Um, it's hard to predict and they're, they're willingly taking on a lot of financial challenges because there is a part of the work that they love so much that for many of them, they, they would dream of millions of dollars for that work, but they would also do it for free because they love it so much. So like the, the sort of internal calculus of like, okay, what are my sources of income? What are my skills? Um, how, what is the value that's placed on my work? Like all of those things were kind of variables that were in play. So having a financial wellness program that was really built around a holistic embrace of the role of money in our lives and how we as human beings sort of identify and formulate what our choices are, how we self-regulate emotionally around those choices, et cetera. So it was like, it was the deepest, most complex, most wonderful work that I could be doing. Yeah. And it was, it was so um, exciting. I know when I had given presentations for your groups, uh, I was stretched in so many ways to even research new topics. Um, and I know on the flip side, a lot of the people that you were working with in that setting you ended up referring to Green Path. Where was the fit for what Green Path was able to do that your holistic program wasn't really in a position to support people on? We did not have the practical resources. Like we didn't have the tools that you guys did in terms of like being able to assess people for debt management plans, for example, and, and to be able to be sort of in that operational place with them. I I did feel um, because one of the the challenges in making good referrals is you want to make sure that people are are being treated the way that you would have them treated. And I always felt like your credit counselors were people who gave them an honest assessment of their options, and that was really important. Um, and similarly, when it, it when I was looking for 
um, educational resources, like it felt like you had such a good grounding in the reality of these financial systems and options. Um, and you legitimately wanted to help people, you know, you wanted people to have the best information so that they could make the best decisions for themselves. And you were a speaker, like you would come in and you would like, people knew that you were there because you cared and you were able to communicate information in a really, um, straightforward kind of way. Chris is a good speaker, y'all. You know, I'm going to edit that part out, right? (laughs) (laughs) But thank you. Um, So you were in your dream job. And yet several years ago, you had a major change. You left your dream job, moved to the other side of the country. Um, So I'm just curious. Tell me about that time. What was that like? What were some of the lessons that were learned during the transition? So that job was wonderful, but it was only ever going to be that job. Like there was, there was nowhere else that I was going to go at the agency. Um, And in order for it to grow, it sort of needed somebody who was going to be able to give it more time to than I was going to give it. So I, I kind of knew that I would have to leave that nest at a certain point and but it was so hard and I love the nest so much that probably the only way that I was ever going to leave it was by moving across the country. So that, that decision was made um, between my husband and me in like 2016. And we, we moved kind of for his job, but also just to kind of like check out a new place and sort of like pick up stakes and, and see what it was like out here. Um, And it was very, there were tons of possibilities, but I would also describe that period for me career-wise as being really humbling because I had a lot that I felt like I was the expert in my domain. Um, When I was in New York, I knew all the players. I had a lot of other project stuff going on. And then I moved to California and it was like the entertainment industry that I felt so comfortable in is very different out here. Um, and, and I didn't have an organization that I was working for where I could just sort of show up and do my job. I suddenly had to be an entrepreneur and there were all of these other kind of like skills, um, that were required of me to navigate that transition that I did not have in the beginning. And I really had to sort of build for myself. So how was it? It was yucky. And I felt pretty bad about it for the first period. So what were some of the lessons learned? Uh, Cause you did come out the other side, but uh, yeah. How did, how did you come out the other side when it came to that? I, I said yes to a lot of things that I didn't um, know how to do initially. Like for example, this podcast, um, with WNYC, like we had a, that came out of some probably like higher visibility that I had in terms of like doing my brand sponsorship, where I was doing a lot of like communications work and and press for a large financial institution and talking about financial wellness. Um, again, like I will remind your listeners that I am a social worker. I am not a communications professional. So I was kind of like, all right, but I'm a 
person who likes to talk about this and I really believe in the message. So I will, I will try this out and I will learn as I go. And, and um, when I get the opportunity to do a podcast, which I think will be a really great way to sort of like share this work with people, I'm going to figure that out. And I really had to figure it out because the studio plan that we had um, along came, like my producer was supposed to fly out from New York to LA March 24th in order to record of 2020. Um, so that all kind of got scuttled while, and then they were like, guess what? We're going to just send you this suitcase full of recording equipment and audio equipment. And then we're going to walk you through how to use it. And I was like, ah, this is not my skill set. Um, but I said, yes. And I learned and, you know, it has, I have retained sort of like, um, greater comfort with, with being humble in learning experiences and not letting my own sort of discomfort or embarrassment with being very inexpert at things. Um, I have learned as I have gotten older, not to let that be an impediment to me kind of any more than it just like, it'll show up, it'll be an impediment and I'll kind of like take a deep breath and then try to try to just take the next step. Hey, taking risks, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I know you also uh, contribute, uh, you have a number of courses on LinkedIn learning. How did that come about? Um, That I started, I was still in New York when I did my first courses there. Um, And it came about because a friend of mine was doing them and they had asked her, her sort of acquisitions producer said like, do you know anybody else who could do this? And she's like, I think my friend Amanda would be good at it. Um, But it was a new area for LinkedIn in terms of um, doing something that wasn't straight up business content um, to talk about feelings and money and doing those. I've done like a financial wellness um, approach to managing cash flow, a financial wellness course for couples and families, as well as a bunch of different personal finance tips with my um, writing partner who is a financial advisor. So it's, it's, yeah, it's, there's so much of like, just, I am the same person and this is the same skill set. I would like to point out as like the Amanda who showed up in New York and had no idea how she was going to land on her two feet and found a way to land on her two, her two feet, but it was, it was messy and there were consequences. And then I solved the next problem in front of me. Eventually I fought that problem, but then, you know, eventually kind of solved that problem. And, and so like, I, I think that when, because now I'm 47 and like, when, when you look at somebody who's at that point in their life and career, who seems to like know some stuff, like the knowing some stuff often comes from taking risks and learning from those risks that you take and accumulating the sort of lessons learned over time. So like when I was 22, that looked really messy and now I have had enough messes or things that I was not good at at first that that now there's a, a fuller and mature picture. But at any sort of slice that you might do a deep dive on, like none of that looked like it it was going somewhere great. <laughs> it was just like just trying to do the best that I could 
and try to show up for the opportunities that were put in front of me. Yeah. I mean, I I think what's really cool about bringing that up is if, and I do encourage my listeners to, to search for your name uh, on podcasting platforms on LinkedIn learning. And what you might see is sort of like the end result of all this hard work and all these risks and all this messiness. So it might look like this, and it is an amazing polished product in the end, but also, as you said, there's just so much to, to, to get there uh, Mm -hmm. and so much life that goes into those experiences. Um, And of course, you know, you're still a human who has financial decisions to make in your case in a, in a family unit. Um, so I'm just curious uh, if you might speak to what are the, some of the differences with your spouse when it comes to your money personalities? Well, so we have differences and then we have similarities and both can be complicated. Um, the ways that we are different is that when my husband looks at something that's out of balance in our financial life, his <clears throat> Greg's approach is always to think, well, what are the ways that we can make more money? Like clearly we need more money here. And mine is always, okay, how do we spend less? How do we get this under control? Um, and I think between the two of us, that's good, but but it's very hard. Like he's often pushing me to charge more for things, um, to put more of a premium on like the earning piece is much harder for me to solve. And similarly, the conservation or spending less piece is very hard for him to solve. He despises it. So we come up with like, or it just really like it triggers him in a way that's, that's deeply emotional and psychological for him. Um, and I find that really fascinating because I, I see that with a lot of clients too, in terms of the male psyche around like when there's constraint, um, the identity issues that that touches off in many cases. Um, so we have differences there and we lean on each other and, and try to borrow from each other's strengths. Um, like right now we're doing this thing that is, uh, I call it the cooler to just kind of like address some of our like rapid fire automatic spending that we do. Like I need this, just put it in the Amazon cart and it comes. Um, now we're sort of building in a seven day pause around that stuff. And it, it is interesting to see what comes off the list when you put things in the cooler, um, but the cooler is really just intended to be a pause. It's not meant to be a constraint amount. So these are some ways that like we play with the form of that um, with him specifically. Um, a way that we play with that with me is that whenever I'm offered something, I always ask if there's flexibility in the budget or I propose a different fee. Like I've just built that into my, my response. Um, so I encourage people who are listening to like play with the forms of what is challenging for them. Now, the ways that we're similar that are problematic are that both of us would deeply love it if the other person was more interested in the actual day-to-day money management. Both of us find it like tedious and anxiety producing to the extent that like I have largely taken on the lion's share of that responsibility. Like we're both in it, but I I do much more of the day-to-day. And the way that that lives in my calendar is every two, week there, two weeks, there's a two-hour block 
and the title of that appointment is Amanda loves money. And that is just like, that lives in my calendar. And that's the, the sort of like label that I want to put on it to set myself in the right mind frame. But like, if Greg loved money more, like that would love managing money specifically, um, that would be okay with me too. I find it fascinating that there's an ironic statement, Amanda loves money coming from <laughs> what you do. But as I said, right, that profession, what you know, and living it is two different things. But also like, I, I don't think that anybody should have as their goal, like I am going to stop being the human that I am if I have the right information or the right analysis or done this work on myself, like I'm still exactly the same person who got herself into all of the trouble that I've gotten into in my life. It's just now I have better tools to work with that. Um, or maybe I don't spend as much time in it as I used to time in the problem specifically. So I, I, when I see Amanda loves money, in the calendar, like I legitimately love money and I want this to work as well as it can work in my life. Um, and I recognize that this is a way that I can kind of like program my experience to get the outcome from myself, um, that I'm, I'm trying to get. How, uh, I I understand you have two children who have vastly different approaches to money. They have different personalities. Um, how have you seen that played out? Yeah. I, I often worry that like, this is one of those situations where, um, you know, the cobbler's children go barefoot. Like I don't have a prescribed method of doing money with my kids outside of it's something that we always talk about and collaborate around. Um, and, I really try to tailor my response to the idea of fit. Like what is it that the children need individually? And what is it that I, as a, as a nurturer, as a resource, um, as somebody who has more expertise in this, what is it that I can impart to them? So my older child is she's 14 and she is much more of a natural planner and spender. Um, like she just accumulated her, her allowance for like two years to buy an iPad when she was a, a, I don't remember the age, but she was definitely under 10. And she, I think is very much like me in terms of like, here's the constraint. How do I operate inside of that constraint? And she tends to have good, um, planning and discipline within that. My younger one, we haven't, she's turning 10 this month. We haven't shown her the movie Wall Street and we probably won't, but like she is the little blonde child version of like Michael Douglas. Like she is a hustler and a deal maker. And she was out on the streets of Brooklyn. Like she wanted to do lemonade stands every single weekend. And she would, she knew she was cute when she was little and she had no problem, like, like shaking down every person who walked down, walked by setting a high price. She was like, I think we should charge $2 for a cup of lemonade. <laughs> she was like, I can get it. I can get it. Um, and she would be like, Hey, look, we're doing like use her cuteness in every way, like with total consciousness about it. And, and yet she's super generous. Like she will 
pay for parking weirdly. Like she'll carry her money with her and she'll be like, I'll feed the meter mom. I got it. <laughs> Cause she just wants to be in a money world. She wants to use her own money for stuff. She's the quickest one. <laughs> like her sister is going out and my husband's like, you know, uh, do you have money with you? Like how much money do you have? And and the little one will be like, I have money. Do you need it? Like she, so she will share her money. She just really thinks about money. She engages with money. She wants stocks for Christmas. Like she's so fascinated with the kind of like, I think that she recognizes that money has a tremendous amount of power and salience in our society. And that is like deeply interesting to her. Whereas my older one is much more about like feelings and social dynamics. And like that, that's the system that she sees when she looks at the world. And the little one is like, I see money. We joke that like someday we're all going to be working for her. Yeah. Sounds like it. <laughs> <laughs> like just let her pick the nursing home. She's going to be. So I'm going to, I want to switch gears to uh, pick your brain on some of the concepts um, that you have talked about over the years. Before we do that, though, I, I want to just help define for our audience. So you're a financial therapist. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? Um, well, I can say what it means for me, and then I can say what it kind of means in a broader sense. But um, so I went into the mental health field specifically because I wanted to work with people around the role of money in their lives. So I very much work with people as a therapist and coach um, in terms of like, how do they self-regulate around money? Um, how did they structure financial tasks, et cetera? But, but while we're engaging in, in the financial domain, um, I am not offering any sort of like planning services or financial advice um, in terms of anything that they might do with their money. Um, I am there to really support the process. And that's how I look at being a financial therapist. There are some financial therapists because it's not, there is a, a financial therapy association and they offer a um, certified financial therapist uh, designation that you can get. Um, and, and there are people within that organization and who have gotten the uh, CFT one certification who come from a financial planning background. They may be CFPs. Um, they may, all of them to get a CFT one have to ha- have a fiduciary responsibility. Um, so not like selling products for commissions or things like that. But like, that's all just to say that there are lots of people who are in the financial therapy space who might identify as financial therapists who don't have the same mental health background that I do, um, but are definitely working within that intersection of money and mental health. Uh, I was wondering if you might explain what does the good enough budget mean? I, so there's a, a, it goes back in attachment theory. I think it was uh, Winnicott who talked about the good enough mother. Like as a parent, you don't have to be perfect. You just have to be kind of like reliable, um, consistent, and you have to provide some support and structure 
Um, again, not, not 100% of the time, but enough of the time for what your child needs. And I, and so I sort of like extended that idea to the good enough budget and the good enough budget. I think if we, we think of it, first of all, in a sort of nurturing and supportive role, as opposed to like a punitive kind of role, like a budget should be there in the way that I, I was first describing how I came to it as like, it provides a zone of safety and reliability in terms of your choices. And so if your budget covers the big stuff, like with my budget, I had, you know, a certain amount that was my discretionary amount, which was the amount that I kind of had to pay attention to, like, think about your good enough budget as sort of covering all of your regular committed expenses, and then giving you enough form for the discretionary stuff, the stuff that you need to think about and make decisions about um, to give you some direction, but it doesn't necessarily require in order to, to serve that function. It doesn't require for it to necessarily have a direction for every single penny ahead of time. So you just need your budget and your expectation of yourself as sort of like the verb to budget as well. So like how you're using this. Um, to, to provide enough sort of like structure and guidance and support and an allocation of resources toward things that make your life feel good and pleasurable and for it to work the ways that you want it to work, as opposed to the way that I think a lot of people um, think about budgeting, was, which is that a budget is just a tool of no. We're trying to think of like in a good enough budget, like what are you using your budget to say yes to most of the time? So in essence, curiosity, which brings us to my next uh, concept to ask you about, um, tell me about the benefit of benign curiosity when it comes to your money. Benign curiosity is, is about being able to bring awareness to our situation and to ourselves in that situation um, with as much neutrality as possible. So instead of, of being there as sort of like, the, the judge or the critic, like this is good behavior. This is bad behavior. Like it's really important to start with just like, what is my behavior? What are the, the consequences of my behavior? How does it feel to be me in these situations? Um, and to just try to get the lay of the land without jumping to, and what am I going to do with this? Or, Oh, I've identified a problem. What's my solution to the problem? Like, like to just make awareness the job and an an attitude of of benign meaning like not hurtful like neutral to good um to make that kind of curiosity about ourselves our orientation to to sort of mapping what is if you will what are your thoughts on treating yourself as a means of self care you know, I, I love, I'm pro, I want people to have all the treats. Um, and, and I want tr- the treat the way that we understand treat to be really like specific. Um, and what I mean by that is it's not a treat. If you feel like you have to defend it after the fact, like the best treat is the treat that we put in ahead of time. And that helps us be, be functional and be happy 
and all of that, instead of coming from a place of deficit and trying to use treats to catch ourselves up, which I find doesn't work as well, um, or treating ourselves in a way that's going to be regretted later because it turns out that there's not the money or the money wasn't put aside for that particular use. So we want to be very careful because then what happens is that people form a, if, if there's a negative financial consequence afterward, what they do is either the, the lesson is like, I am bad that I needed this, that need is bad. Um, or that it was wrong of me to use those resources to try to take care of myself. I should just try to not I should try to push that need away. Does that make sense? Am I sort of like, one is, I, I like to think that the best treats are, are prophylactic. They're ahead of time. They keep us going and help us feel like our cup is full as opposed to we let ourselves, we let our cup get too empty. And then we're trying to use a treat to like pour something back into ourselves. Yeah. Kind of getting away from sort of the, whether you're saying it out loud or not, the, I deserve this sort of idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If, if you're saying I deserve this, but then there's a, a voice in your head that's going, no, you don't, this is bad. You can't have that. Um, chances are that's that assessment of deservingness is not going to hold still. It's not going to be solid. So we're trying to create a sense of, of deserving and giving to ourselves um, that isn't going to be sort of taken back afterward. And I will say like, that was the part of the budget that my mom helped create for me. That was absolutely transformational in my life that like within that discretionary budget, I could get things for myself. I could take care of myself. My needs could exist in my budget without that making me unsafe. And as a psychotherapist, that's the really critical part is when we experience our needs as somehow making us unsafe, like the need leads to something bad, then it makes it really hard for us to really like find healthy ways to take care of ourselves or see our needs as legitimate or not be sent into like a giant shame spiral because we feel like we need something. So money is really, really integral, like learning how to, how to allocate money towards self-care and give to ourselves and nurture to ourselves with our, our budgeted and allocated funds. That's the truly transformative effect that money can have. So I know that oftentimes even on this podcast, we've talked about how useful it might be to automate payments, automate bill payment, for example. But I know you once wrote about um, some of the cautions around automating spending activity. And you even alluded to that in your personal story a little bit. So wondering if you could expand on that. I think it's really, I think automation is awesome for for taking things that could be claims on our attention and sort of moving them off to the side so that we're better able to put our attention on the things that need it. Um, I don't think that automation is a good solution to solving the problem of money makes me anxious and I'm just trying to avoid looking at it. So if we look at our money and make sure that we are 
clear about how much those automated expenses require um, and how that fits in the overall context of all of our spending and savings choices. And we've sort of kept the the focus on then all the discretionary stuff that we need to figure out. I have zero problem with things being automated, but but I think that that's the place where we really need to tell ourselves the truth is like, am I just automating this because I'm scared to look at it? You once wrote that there's a difference between saying I'm broke versus saying, you know, I can't afford to do that right now because it's not in my budget, but let's plan to do it next month. Could you elaborate on that? So the the second response is is keeping ourselves as the the agent of whether or not something gets done. It's keeping the agency of choice there. So in the first one, the like I'm broke, can't do it. That's that almost sounds like something that has happened to us and is determining what our choice is going to be versus like I have made a different choice of what to do with my money. And I could make a a choice to do it another time when I have that money to make a decision with. And, and some of this, it sounds really clunky. Like you feel like, like I'm never going to say to a friend of mine, you know, I can't afford to do that right now. Like if that doesn't feel like natural language to you, it it's okay to like, to make it a little more informal. Um, but still think about the just keeping yourself as the agent and how you speak about yourself in terms of money. Um, it's an important part of mindset is like making sure that we always stay in touch with our own power, um, our own ability to, to sort of stand like Oprah in our own lives and, and make the choices in front of us, as opposed to disavowing our role in making those choices. One of the choices that people often make is to chase the perfect credit score. Mm. What are your thoughts on that? I I think that that's, again, one of the ways that kind of like, it's sort of like a version of, you know, people loving like personality quizzes and, and personality types and things like that. Like we, we love to look in a mirror and feel like the thing that we see in, in the mirror is something that we value about ourselves. And when people, I think that credit scores play very easily into that very human tendency. So like what, if we see that we have a high credit score, that feels really validating in the sense of like, like, yes, it's super useful to have a good credit score. Um, there are some very real world advantages that come from it at the same time looking at that as a sense of like, that means I'm okay. That means I'm a good person. That means I'm responsible. Um, and being more attuned to that external image of ourselves versus like, how is my financial life really feeling for me? Would it make more sense for me to, for example, like is, is carrying a balance on a credit card, something that strategically makes sense in my life, but I would be afraid to do it because I'm afraid it's going to knock my credit score. Um, like I, I just encourage people to really stay focused on, on their own sort of metrics um, for understanding how, how these different tools can work in their lives. Even if it, it does have, gives you kind of a temporary ding on your credit score. Um, if it works for you, that's the most important thing. 
you once wrote, everyone in this world has more or less money than you. So I'm wondering if you might tell me about the concept of financial uniqueness and why many find this surprising and at the same time terrifying. So I used to say this all the time in in the beginning of my workshops, um, because I would just need to flag for people. Like there are very specific ways that we we talk about and don't talk about money in, in polite society, if you will. And in these workshops, inevitably what would happen is that somebody would say a number for something. They would say how much their rent is. They would say how much their student loan is. Um, they would talk about how much they had in savings. And I would, I could look at the faces and everybody in the room would put themselves on one side or other of that number of either having more or less and, and going like, is their number the right number? Is my number right? Not the right number. And, and like the idea and humans very naturally kind of want to sort themselves socially. Um, so we're never going to stop this. So I would try to at least like sort of normalize it, if you will, by just acknowledging that we're all different and, and, that sort of feeling of like, oh, maybe theirs is the right way and mine is the wrong way is, is a way like sometimes that's useful information, but most of the time we really do want to just kind of go like that is, that's a reaction that I have. It's not necessarily the reality is like some person might have a really low rent, but they might also have a huge student loan and you're not getting, you're only getting one piece of the data. So we, we have to kind of like remind ourselves not to not to overinterpret the things that we know and step away from the idea of sort of like we, how we'd like to put ourselves relative to that person we're all different i'll close uh back to uh your your personal journey so thinking back to your 22 year old or so version of yourself who had just landed in the big city uh, landed, landed a new job in marketing. What advice would you have for that version of yourself? I would, what advice would I give to myself? I would tell myself that money is so much bigger and more interesting than I thought it was. Like, I really thought that it was, it was about smallness and like small thinking. And it was about no, and it was about shame. And it took me a while to figure out the ways, the, the things about money that would be engaging and interesting for me. And I would just like to tell my 22 year old self, like, just because what you know about this subject isn't interesting, doesn't mean that there isn't more that you can discover that is going to be the thing that, that makes that sort of inspires you to do really great work and inspires you to take care of people and inspires you to like, take on big goals and to, to find four hours a month to truly love money and put it in your calendar. Just remember, Amanda loves money. As remember, Amanda loves money. So with that, 
Thank you. Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for giving so many valuable tips for our listeners. And just thank you for all that you've done, uh, both for, for Green Path over the years, and even for myself to, to push me to take those risks that you spoke of. I could not be more thrilled, Chris, to have known you this long and for us to have so many different ways that we have both nerded out on this uh, subject, but like to discover that 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 initial work took you in some fun directions is delightful for me to hear. If you'd like to learn more about Amanda, check out www.amandaclayman.com. That's C-L-A-Y-M-A-N. You may also wish to search for her on your favorite podcasting platform. For example, you can hear her on WNYC's Death, Sex, and Money on their financial therapy series. Her online courses are also featured in LinkedIn Learning. Speaking of online courses, my team and I created the Learning Lab, which features free interactive courses. If Amanda's advice resonated with you, you might enjoy our course on Aligning Your Priorities, an interactive worksheet featuring activities designed to help you create a budget that truly meets your needs. Learn more at www.greenpath.com slash learning lab. Special thanks to Hero for our theme music, which will play us out. Here's hoping each of you enjoy your journey of financial wellness as much as your destination. <laughs>